114. This is episode 114 of The Anxious Truth. Welcome back, dudes, dudettes, and all sentient beings of varying and fluid gender that come in peace. I hear you and I see you. Pull up a chair. Let's talk about the idea of seeking certainty in the world where none is ever going to exist. How this premise fits into the whole anxiety thing. Where is it in your anxiety disorder? How is it fueling your anxiety? How is it making things worse? And we're going to look at the paradox of why seeking certainty and looking for that 100% ironclad guarantee that bad things won't happen actually makes it harder for you to assess real, existent, real life, true threats in the world. So the search for certainty is actually self-defeating. When we search for certainty in an irrational way, as we tend to do when we're in the grips of an anxiety disorder, we're literally eroding our ability to handle true, real-life, actual, uncertain situations that require our attention and our action, right? So let's get into this. Before we do, I'm going to do the 15-second version of, like, book advertisement, theanxioustruth.com slash recovery guide. I am, I am proud of this book. I'm sorry, I just am. Just based solely on the feedback that I'm getting from the people who are reading it and digging it and using it, and it's helping them, yeah, check it out. It's essentially everything you have ever heard me say on social media, on a podcast, and all these different channels, except much deeper in detail and organized in logical sequence, like a course in recovering from an anxiety disorder. So yeah, it's that. It's that. If you're looking for a course on how to fix your anxiety problems, well, this book appears to have actually become that. And that's what I was hoping it would be. So theanxioustruth.com slash recovery guide, check it out. If you have read the book, Maybe you write me a review on Amazon, by the way. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into the episode. Let's talk about the search for certainty. Now, we know that when you are in the throes of, say, a panic attack, uh, and we're going to talk about the different forms that you know the search for certainty takes in, in these anxiety disorders that we talk about all the time. So when you're in the throes of a panic attack, this is like the simplest form of it, what fuels things in a big way are those what-if thoughts. What if, what if, what if, what if. And it's why I've said things, and sometimes they're controversial things, like in the middle of a panic attack, when you are just you know engulfed in a tidal wave of high anxiety and panic and irrational fear, positive self-talk and positive affirmations and thought checking and all the cool CBT stuff that I do love so much goes out the window. And, and why? Why it goes out the window is because there's that underlying search for certainty and 100% guarantee of safety that underlies most of that. So when you are, you know, in the midst of a, a giant panic attack, you know, what, what's fueling that in a lot of ways is what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, like, what if this really is the time that I am dying? What if this is really the time that I will go insane? What if this is really the time that I will pass out or have a bathroom related accident or what or embarrass myself or whatever it is, the fear that you have glued to panic, whatever your worst case scenario is, maybe it's death, maybe it's, you know, a stroke, it's a heart attack, it's. I know people who are afraid they will go blind or they will snap, they will go insane. All of the things that we all know about in a panic attack, those are all fueled by the, by the idea that what if. It's all what if, right? So you are seeking some sort of assurance and certainty that those what if things are not going to happen. And since the fear is completely and utterly irrational, like your lifetime full of experiences tells you that those worst case fears never come true, 
but the real life experiences that you had don't enter into it because the fear is by definition irrational. So you cannot try to apply rational thought to an irrational fear and expect to, you know, soothe it and make it go away. It doesn't happen. So in the midst of panic, you know, super high anxiety waves and panic itself, we are seeking certainty because we want assurance that all those, oh my God, oh my God, the thoughts that come during panic that all start with, oh my God, and what if, that's, that's, that's this, the, the, uh, the need for certainty, the need for 100% assurance that you are actually safe in that moment. And even though reality has told you that you always have been safe in that moment, it doesn't matter when it's happening, right? So, that's one way that we try to seek certainty. We want absolute assurance that what we fear won't happen. And no amount of logic in that situation will actually provide that. It may provide it from moment to moment, but just when you kind of have yourself convinced that like, oh yeah, I've had a bunch of panic attacks before, you know, you're trying to talk yourself out of it. Oh, this has happened before. It's okay. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I have this. I'm strong. I have it. It'll pass. There's always that little voice that says, yeah, but what if this is the time? What if this is the time? And it shatters that illusion of 100% certainty and ironclad guarantee of safety. It shatters it, right? So, and that's what fuels this stuff in so many ways, the search for certainty. So that's kind of on a micro moment to moment level during a panic attack. For people who are dealing with rampant health anxiety, for instance, uh, the, even people who are dealing with things like social anxiety, the search for certainty has a, a more macro scale to it. It kind of stays with you all day long where you get stuck in those overthinking patterns of, well, well, what if I get sick? Well, what if this, what if this pain in my hand actually means this? What if, what if, what if I better Google, I better ask, I better search, I better ask a doctor, I better get on my favorite anxiety form and ask if anybody else has ever had a pain in their hand. And what did it mean? And did you have any tests? And what did it turn out to be? Uh, people who deal with social anxiety or dealing with the uncertainty of how they will be perceived by the outside world in given contexts and situations and interactions. You know, what if somebody judges me? What if they think I'm too much? What if they think I'm overbearing? What if they think I'm annoying? You know, all this what if, what if, what if, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? This is, with no bearing on actual reality, right? These are all fear-based, irrational fear-based distortions. And they come from a lot of different places, but in the end, that's what they are. So you are seeking, you know, absolute 100% certainty in the world, but you're viewing the world through a completely distorted lens, uh, the, the fear lens, which has warped reality and shown it to you as this incredibly dangerous situation that doesn't really exist. So it's an uphill battle. You're seeking certainty, yet you are viewing the world as inherently dangerous when it is not. So how can you, how can you find that safety and security and certainty in a world that you are perceiving as just inherently dangerous? See how it's it's a vicious cycle. It fuels itself. It fuels itself. And, you know, this is a big problem here. This is actually a big problem. So then other people wind up getting stuck in the search for certainty everywhere in their life. They, they want certainty about the safety of their loved ones, about the outcome of career and money events, about just about everything in the world, current events. Right now we're in the middle, you know, whenever you're listening to this, remember the good old days in 2020 when there was a global pandemic in force. We're in the middle of that now. And a lot of people are having serious uncertainty issues, you know, around the COVID-19 situation or, you know, uh, the political situations, civil unrest, race relations. Like there's a ton of things to be uncertain about in the world that really do require some level of tolerance for uncertainty. They are uncertain. They are fraught with pitfalls and negatives. 
And, and so that distortion, that reality distortion field of anxiety and irrationally magnifying a threat makes it all seem just so overwhelming. So I know, you know, whether you're at the micro level of like, oh my God, this might be a heart attack because you're experiencing panic or at the macro level of I feel paralyzed in my life because I just can't do anything unless I feel 100% sure of the way it's going to turn out, 100% sure of the outcome. I need 100, I, I have to know, I have to know, I have to know. So really, we can all boil this all down, whether it's the panic attack micro level or just that general overthinking, fearful, I just have to know, I have a need to know. I can't tolerate uncertainty. I must be sure of what's going to happen because that makes me feel safe. Like in the end, what you're looking for is an ironclad guarantee of what the future will be because you feel like that will keep you safe. That is what this is. And the future may be defined as the next two seconds in the case of a raging panic attack, or it may be defined as what's going to happen over the next 10 years based on a U.S. presidential election. It could be all of those things. But in the end, you know, if you are racked by this to the point where it is just fueling more and more anxiety and you feel crippled because you cannot take steps forward and you can't make change and you're having a hard time just coping on a daily basis because you've got this intense need to feel safe and you think that somehow coming up with a mental model of the future that predicts the future and makes you prepared for every possible outcome keeps you safe. And that's just not true. So I want you to sort of frame it this way. Let's imagine that you are wearing glasses. I wear glasses. My eyes are horrific and have been since I'm like 10 years old. It's a flaw. Genetics. What are you going to do? So let's say that you wear glasses. And so those glasses are the way that you see the world, right? You are viewing the world through those lenses. Now, let's assume that those lenses get dirty over time because they do. Glasses get dirty, dust and fingerprints and nastiness. You got to clean them once in a while, right? So your glasses have been getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier as you go. And the dirt on the lens that is distorting the way you see the world and clouding the way you see the world is the anxiety, is the fear, is the drive for uncertainty. They're just smearing those lenses. So they get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier as you go. And so it makes sense that when your glasses get dirty, you would want to try to clean them, right? We think, well, well I want to see better. I want to see things clearly because I'll have a better experience in life if I can see clearly. So, you know, in the real world, if I want to clean my glasses, I get out a little lens cleaning cloth. Maybe I'll squirt it with some lens cleaning solution and psh, I take the dirt off it. And oh my God, I can see again. I go about my way. It's great, right? Anybody who wears glasses knows what I'm talking about. Anybody who's ever had to clean the windshield of your car knows what I'm talking about. But here's where this analogy gets interesting for those of us who are dealing with an anxiety disorder and whose actions are generally governed and advised by that underlying fear and irrational fear and overthinking and overanalyzing and being on guard and being hypervigilant all the time for threats of varying types, be they in your own body or outside in the world, whatever it is. If you are viewing the world through those type of lenses, then every time you try to clean your glasses, clean those lenses and get a clear view of the world, you're actually spreading more dirt on them. So you're not cleaning your glasses, you are making them even dirtier. Think about that for a second. Every time you respond to the, the feeling of insecurity or vulnerability, or you feel unsafe, or you feel threatened, or you feel unsure, whether that's unsure about the next two seconds in a panic attack, or whether that's unsure about the next 10 years of your life, when you respond to that fear, 
by trying desperately to run at any sort of certainty that you can manufacture in your brain. You got to think, I got to think, I got to think, what if, what if, let me analyze, let me think, let me think. I hear so many people who proclaim that, well, this is crazy, this COVID thing, it has me spiraling. I can't help it. I must think about things all the time. Well, we, you can learn to not do that. But when that is your response to that fear, when your response to the fear driven by uncertainty at a micro or macro level is to just try harder to find some sort of certainty or ironclad guarantee, then you are essentially cleaning your glasses with more dirt. That, that can't be the continuous response to that feeling. That's a habit that you've built over time and a habit that you are making stronger and stronger. You're just ingraining it. So when you feel uncertainty, what you are essentially doing is responding to it with a desperate harder search for certainty. Like I need this, this ironclad guarantee. I need to know what the future is. I need to know. So therefore I need to think about it. I need to think about it. I need to think about it because I think that's going to give me certainty and keep me safe. But that's not true. That's not true. You can't get this thing. So you try even harder to get this thing. But in the end, what you're missing is that you don't actually need that thing. You don't need certainty to, to be safe in the world. You don't. Like, all of life is uncertain every single day. That is truth. We are not guaranteed anything in this life. So when you are trying to live a life that is governed and, and directed by being certain and safe and always sure that nothing bad will happen, and you think you're going to achieve that by engaging in your safety rituals and behaviors during panic and anxiety waves, or by your overthinking, or by your checking and scanning and Googling and asking and doctor visits for health anxiety, right? By overanalyzing, overthinking, withdrawing, retreating, and avoiding and social anxiety. When, you're, when you engage in those safety-seeking and reassurance-seeking and certainty-seeking behaviors as a response to being uncertain, you are cleaning your glasses with dirt, mud, Vaseline, things that make it even hard to, harder to see. So you're essentially digging yourself more deeply into a, a state of bad vision, right? So let's look at, you know, our vision as like our, our ability to navigate the world. So if my glasses get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier, and every time I need to clean them, I clean them with dirt, sooner or later, I'm going to start tripping over things. I'm not going to see things that are in my way. I'm not going to be able to drive very well. I can't read. I just can't see anything. Because everything that I do all the time, when I'm looking through those lenses, I'm looking through that that film and, and dirt, right? I'm, I'm looking through the dirt and the debris of fear that I keep piling on the lens every time I think I'm cleaning it, but I'm not. I'm making it dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And when I cannot see because of all the fear that I have piled on top of my lenses through which I view the world, then I start to lose the ability to actually navigate the world. So I want you to understand that you are in many cases, remember, the, the dirt on the lens is the distortion. So you see the world as scarier and scarier and scarier and scarier. But that's only because of the dirt on the lens, the fear, the irrational part of that fear. And we'll talk about that in a second, like how we define, you know, the, 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 uh, the spectrum of irrationality and fear. Like, in, in the end, that irrational fear is making the world look so unsafe to you. And when you respond to irrational fear with more irrational fear and it, you seek certainty with an even harder, you know, search for certainty, well, 
that's going to be a problem. And you hear Copper has decided he's going to join the podcast. Sorry, he's just going to have to be a member of the podcast today. But when you respond to uncertainty with with an even more desperate attempt to try to find certainty, well, that's that's a problem. You're piling more and more dirt on your lens, and you're magnifying that distortion. You're magnifying the irrational fear that starts to inform all of your actions are based on irrational fear. So let's talk about the spectrum of, of sort of that irrational fear. Like the irrational fear could be, well, even though I've never actually had a stroke or never passed out or never gone crazy during a panic attack, well, it might still, I might still have it. So there's the irrational fear that says I'm going to completely and utterly ignore reality completely and just make up my own, you know, version of reality and, and govern myself based on that. So even though after 17,000 panic attacks, none of those things has ever happened, and you guys know what I'm talking about, if this is your problem, it doesn't matter. I'm going to throw away all those 17,000 experiences and only act based on what's in my head. But what if this time, what if this time? So that's one form of irrational fear. So if you're dealing with panic attacks and things of that nature that lead you to become agoraphobic, then this is part of your irrational fear. On the other side of irrational fear is I'm going to take an, a real threat or a real possibility for something negative to happen, and I'm going to magnify the probability of that by a million times, a million times. So is it possible that you may become ill one day in your life, you know, seriously ill? It's possible. But the odds of that being true today, based on no evidence that you were actually ill, just the worry that you might become ill health anxiety, for instance, the odds of that are so small. There's no indication that reality says that you are ill or becoming ill. So you are taking something that has a real possibility and magnifying the probability of it happening a million times. So that's the health anxiety, uh, you know, sort of example of that. A lot of people just look at you know, well, what if we have a car accident and we're driving my family? What if it's not safe? What if this thing happens to my kids? What if there's a danger to my kids? You know, what, what if one of the family gets sick? What if we, what if my husband loses his job? What if we become homeless? What if we can't afford to eat? Like all of those things are actually in the realm of possibility. Those things do happen to human beings. But you are taking the fact that it is possible and you are distorting it into thinking that it is probable. Just understand the difference between what is possible and what is probable. Just because something is possible doesn't make it likely. But, you know, irrational fear will distort possibility at a minute probability and turn it into reality at a very high probability when that's just flat out not true. So those are the different ways that irrational fear distorts things and, and, and smears our lenses to make the world look more dangerous than it, than it actually is. So I want to talk for a second about, uh, you know, so using the, the analogy of the lenses, you know, clearly if you're going to keep you know, dirtying up your lenses more and more and more, what's going to happen? Like, all you want to do is see clearly. I understand that. I All I wanted to do was see clearly. I didn't want to have panic attacks. I didn't want to be afraid of going out of the house. I didn't want to be afraid of driving eight minutes to my office. I didn't want any, any of those things. I know you do not any, you don't want these things in your life anymore. You don't want to be gripped by overthinking. You don't want to be crippled by indecision. You don't want to be crippled by panic. You don't want to be frozen by anxiety and fear and uncertainty. I understand that. So we, all we want to do, metaphorically speaking, in this particular analogy, or if it's a metaphor, it's an analogy, I don't know. But uh, all we want to do is clean those lenses and have a nice clean pair of glasses to see the world through. Like, oh, that is so much better. Like, all we want to do is clean, the, clean our glasses and see the world a whole lot better, except we're making it worse. 
We're making it worse. Let's talk for a quick second about let's let's talk a little bit of science that goes behind this. Let's talk about a thing, a concept called cognitive load. Uh, cognitive load is a concept used in cognitive science, behavioral sciences, to start to study and describe like the the ability of the typical human being to process multiple things. How many things can we think about and process at the same time? Like this is important. So I'm not going to get deep into it. But you know, I, I'm using the glasses analogy as like a, a layman's, you know, way to describe it and an, an easy to visualize way to describe it. But underneath that, one of the things underneath that is the concept of cognitive load. And when we research that we see that, you know, human beings exist in a pretty narrow range of what we can process simultaneously. And we could talk about how, you know, simultaneous processing isn't truly a thing. We're just tearing down and building up mental models really quickly. Some people do it faster and slower, whatever. But in the end, cognitive load is germane to this discussion, because we know when we study that over and over and over that human beings have a reasonably limited ability to process a lot of things at the same time, or seemingly at the same time, we're not good at it. We're just not some people are better at it, some people are worse at it. But even when you take like, you know, the, the worst people and the best people that range is pretty narrow, pretty narrow. So I want to bring that forward a little bit and say, how can we use cognitive load to sort of visualize what we need to do here? It's, it's part of the way we need to clean our lenses, our figurative lenses, right? So if you are going to walk around, and you are going to continually pick up every issue that you see in front of you through this distorted lens and carry it with you, like now I got to carry this fear, now I have to carry that fear, now I have to carry this thought, this thought, I got to think about that, 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 I got to plan for this, I need this, I, you're just stuffing things into like the bag that you are holding in your hand, you are filling the sack that you have in your hand, you're filling the bag, right? Sooner or later, you will not be able to walk because you are carrying a giant bag load of things. So the act of carrying the bag by itself becomes the only thing that you can actually do. So let me repeat that. If you're going to walk through life and continually pick up every issue you see in front of you and hang on to it, like I need this, I need this, I need this, I got to bring this, I got to think of this. Those are your your fears. Those are your thoughts. Those are the sensations. Those are all the things that you do to try and keep you safe from those things and guarantee that they don't mean certain doom. Every time you pick up another thing and carry it with you, because you think that having these things in the bag, in the sack, in the box that you're carrying, you think these are the things that will keep you safe. You are going to get to the point where the only thing you can actually do is just hold that bag. You can't move. You can't walk. You can't navigate. You can't make decisions. You can't do anything. Your only job is to keep holding the bag and actually to keep looking for more things to put in the bag. That's cognitive load. Sooner or later, you run out of the ability to do anything but try to remember stuff. So that's demonstrated so clearly in research over and over and over. Like you just keep adding something to the person's plate. And sooner or later, all of their processing power is dedicated to just the act of, of hearing, listening and remembering. So like nothing else becomes possible, I can't do anything else, because all I can do is just work on this exercise in front of me. So when I say that the search for certainty actually destroys your ability to handle uncertainty, that's what I'm talking about. You become so engrossed in the search for certainty, in a context where you don't need that certainty, that when you actually need to display some sort of tolerance for a real threat, you need to assess a real threat, you need to actually respond to true and present uncertainty. And you need to take action to navigate that in the world, which we all do every day in our lives. You can't, you have no tolerance for it. There's no tolerance, you have no room left, you are cognitively loaded to the hilt. So you are so busy worrying about all the things that you can't control and don't need to 
that you cannot exert any sort of control or respond in an appropriate way to the actual real life challenges that, that stand in front of you. And those may be very tiny challenges like, oh, the, uh, I have to put gas in the car or else I'm not going to make it to the supermarket. That's a challenge. Like, that's a thing. Do I have enough gas to get there? That's uncertainty. That little tiny thing right there is a little bit of uncertainty. But like, uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not carrying around a giant bag full of 7,000 pounds worth of thoughts and ideas and and safety behaviors and rituals and like this keeps me safe. If you're carrying that giant bag, then you can't even recognize that little bit of uncertainty. Like you don't know, like, should I get gas? Should I not get gas? And I mean, I'm guessing that at least a few of you listening to this have been in that literal position where getting said like it's hard enough to get out to the store. Like, oh my God, if the car doesn't have a gas, that means I might have to stop for gas. Can I make it? Can I not? That becomes overwhelming just by itself. Because you are, have hit the limit of your cognitive load, if you want to look at it scientifically. I, that's an oversimplification of what cognitive load is. I understand that. But I think it's a good illustration. Your glasses cannot get any dirtier. They are so dirty that you simply cannot see. You are only looking at the inside of the glasses as you go through life now. You are only looking at all the stuff you have smeared on those glasses in layers and layers and layers and layers. So you have lost sight of the actual world. So this is what I mean. When I, you know, posted on, on my Instagram and on social media that this was, you know, going to be the topic of the conversation today, that the, the obsessive search for certainty is actually destroying your ability to navigate instances where there really is uncertainty, however minor it may be. That's what I'm talking about. So, of course, we have to say, well, what do you do about that? What do you do about that? Well, in the end, we want to be able to see through clear lenses, right? We want to just, we don't want to have dirt on our lenses. We just want to see clearly figuratively speaking. We don't want to carry a thousand pound bag full of issues around with us and fears, irrational fears. We don't we want to put that down. I want to be light. I want to be nimble. I want to be able to see the world clearly. I want to be able to react to it. I want to be able to interact with it. I want to be able to get enjoyment from the world. I want to be able to improve the world, you know, like love my family. I want to do all those things that human beings do, but I'm just, I can't see because my glasses are smeared with layer upon layer of irrational fear that I keep adding to every time I seek more certainty. And I'm just weighed down by this giant sack of stuff that I keep adding to because I think it's keeping me safe. So all we want to do is clean our glasses, see clearly and put down the giant heavy bag. That's all we want to do. And we want to do that so that we are able to actually navigate the uncertainties of life. So what we must learn is that we can tolerate uncertainty. We can. And this comes back to the same thing that I talk about again and again and again. And it's the part that I know everybody hates to hear. I don't have any magical, like enlightening things to tell you. I've now spent 25 minutes trying to paint a picture of why this is true so you can see what's going on here. You know, and, and using like uh, clever analogies like glasses and, and talking about cognitive load and filling a giant sack and having to carry it around. But in the end, all those clever analogies and moments where you're like, oh, aha, I never thought of it that way. That's awesome. But those moments by itself don't actually solve the problem. Now that you may be aware of this problem, and you weren't before, that's great. But now that you're aware of it, what can you do about it? And unfortunately, what we have to do is the thing we always have to do. So when you are feeling like, I must think about the future, I must think about everything, I must think, I must think, or I must retreat, or I must protect, or I must perform my rituals, or whatever it is, I must do my thing that keeps me safe, you have to learn to not do that. Do not do that. And, and I know you're going to say, but how do you stop? How do you just stop thinking? Well, you can learn to stop thinking. 
You know, I've spent five years talking about these sort of systems that we use to do that. The ability to focus your mind, the ability to quiet your mind, the ability to relax your body, the ability to breathe properly. These aren't magic, but these are the skills that we can actually learn when we need to. I can disengage from this thought pattern. I'm still going to hear it. The thoughts will still be screaming at me. You better think about this. What if this happens? What if this happens? But I don't have to respond by chasing them and getting on the hamster wheel. I'm like, oh, I know I better think about this. We better talk about this. And you're talking about it with yourself most of the time. Like you can stop doing those things. But when you do that in a panic attack, when you just relax and just let it come and get you and kill you, you are facing the uncertainty that you fear so much. What if this is the time that it really does kill me? Mm -hmm. You are facing that square in the face without trying trying to achieve safety or guarantee that you're okay. So what we are learning when we do these things, when you, when you relax in the face of a panic attack, when you try and quiet your mind and, and, and refocus and put your attention out from behind your own eyes, when you find yourself in that thought spiral, I got to think, 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 whoop, hang on, let me relax my body, let me go to my breathing, let me do three minutes of that basic meditation skill where all I do is focus on my breath and I let the thoughts just go there and then leave. When you do those things, you practice those things, you learn those things, when you start doing them and you disengage from the safety behavior of getting on the hamster wheel and running after certainty, when you disengage, it's going to really be hard. Like you will feel incredibly vulnerable and unsafe. Like understand that that's part of the process. But the new experience that you will have is that, oh, I wound up okay anyway. Even though I did not allow myself to go into the, the endless thought spiral over my health or a social situation or some tragedy that I think I'm protecting my family against by thinking about it, when you disengage from that, you will feel so unsettled because then the threat, it seems like you are unprotected against this threat. But then over time, you are essentially inviting the uncertainty in and discovering like, oh, it didn't actually exist. Like this wasn't a thing. I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that. And then when you get better and better at doing that, and I understand it's really difficult and it does take practice and it takes time. You are learning a new way to relate to your own irrational fear this way. But over time, you begin to understand and your brain gets the message. like, Oh, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. That really wasn't a threat. So people ask me all the time, what is one of the greatest benefits that I think came out of my anxiety recovery? Aside from not being afraid of panic and anxiety anymore. And often I say threat assessment. Like my ability to assess a threat is absolutely like world-class at this point. I'll tell you what a threat is. Like the world is no longer a threat and you can get there too. Do not underestimate the benefits of that. So when you are spending all of your time trying to seek certainty in the face of irrationally perceived threats, when you learn to not do that, suddenly you get so good at knowing when there's an actual threat that needs real action. And you don't freak out when it happens because you've had all that practice during the recovery process of facing uncertainty and not losing your shit over it and still coming out okay on the other end. You are building the sense of like, well, that was really scary, but I did it. I can do that. I can do that. So there's so many benefits to learning these skills and deciding I'm going to do this now. I'm not going to let myself get into the thought spiral. Sometimes it happens. You know, when panic comes, I'm not going to call my safe person. I'm not going to run home. Sometimes we, we revert to old habits and they're going to happen along the way. It's okay. But when the overall trend is I'm going to stop doing those safety things, when I want to think I'm going to disengage from my thoughts, when I want to analyze I'm going to disengage from an analysis, I'm going to feel really unsettled and uncertain and unsafe and shaky when I do that because it feels like ugh, suddenly I'm not protecting myself. 
But over time, you learn you never had to protect yourself. And you learn that you can tolerate the distress of uncertainty. It's, un it's imagined uncertainty at that point, but it's uncertainty in your brain nonetheless, so it counts. Like you are teaching yourself that, oh, I have the ability to actually navigate and tolerate uncertainty. I have the ability to tolerate a little bit of distress. I have, a little, I have the ability to tolerate what I believe is the unknown. So you are accomplishing so many different things. And when you come out the other side of that, suddenly you are way better at life. I'm telling you right now, you are way better at life. So the paradox here, the paradox here in the end is that when you live your life deciding that, well, I must seek certainty because that's my thing. It just makes me feel better. You are actually undermining the very thing you hope to achieve. In the end, it gets to the point, and look, everybody sometimes does this. You know, I'm going to say, you know, air quotes, normal people who aren't listening to the podcast, they don't have this problem. So normal people sometimes have that happen too, right? Like regular people just sometimes get a little bit caught up in an issue like, oh, this seems like such a terrible thing. And the next day they think like, ah, oh, man, it doesn't sound so bad. Let me, let's get to work here. Let's fix this. So that's the way like the so-called normal people would do it. When it gets to the point where you are consumed by these things all the time and they govern your every move, which can happen in these disorders that we talk about, then that thing where you think that, well, I must, I must seek certainty. I feel better when I'm, when I'm uncertain. Like, yeah, I know, Drew, like I have to be okay with being uncertain, but I just can't do that. I need certainty. I have to know. When you declare that, you are undermining the exact thing that you are so desperate to get. You are, you are destroying your ability to tolerate real uncertainty in the world, actual uncertainty instead of irrationally magnified or manufactured uncertainty. You're destroying your ability to actually navigate uncertainty, which is just a part of life. So, you know, I don't want to go too much longer here. We're over 30 minutes already, but I think there was a lot to say on this. Remember all these things that you are likely doing. You know, you just want clear lenses so that you can navigate the world and live a normal life. And every time you try to clean your lenses with safety behaviors and rituals designed to achieve an ironclad guarantee and certainty, you are adding more dirt to your lenses. Every time you react to that uncertain feeling by picking up thoughts and jamming them in the bag and issues, I better carry this, I better carry this, I better carry this, I better not forget that. You are adding to your cognitive load, and therefore you have no ability to do anything but hold that bag. So you are not going to achieve certain certainty at all. That's a myth. And you are going to be less able to actually navigate whatever circumstance does really pop up. So yeah, the obsessive search for certainty literally destroys your ability to handle uncertainty. And uncertainty is just a part of life. I don't have a podcast episode where I can make that not true. It's true. And it will remain true for as long as there are human beings in the universe. And there you go. I, I, I probably laid a whole lot on you in this one. I understand that. And uh, it's funny, as time goes on and I do more and more episodes, I'm always sometimes surprised at the things that I have forgot to talk about up until this point. Like, this is something I probably should have addressed three or four years ago in the podcast. But for, for whatever reason, I, I didn't. Um, and I start to learn like, oh, no, this is a big issue. This is a central topic for so, so, so many people. So there you go. Anyway, I appreciate you guys coming by. Uh, where are we? This is 114. So 115 next week. Um, yeah, as usual, I'm going to ask that if you are listening on iTunes or any place where you can rate and review the podcast, um, maybe leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the podcast. Again, I, I urge you, if, if you are digging the podcast and you have questions and you want to say, well, how I can get, I, tell me more here. You know, can you tell me more? Can you answer this question or that question? Check out the book. 
the anxioustruth.com slash recovery guide, the anxioustruth.com slash links is all my social media links. Go join my Facebook group. It's freaking amazing. Like if you're not in it, get in it. Like we'd love to have you and have you participate in the group. You'll be so inspired by what goes on in that group. I'm super proud of those people. Um, okay, I think I've done all the housekeeping. I hope that this has been helpful to you guys. We'll probably revisit this in some way, shape, or form over the next, you know, however many months, I'm quite sure. Um, next week, I'm pretty sure I have a guest, so it's going to be good. Come back then. I appreciate your support, as always. Oh, by the way, I probably have 10,000 Instagram followers right now. There's a very good chance today will be the day that I hit 10,000. So for those of you who have been supporting me on social media and all those different channels, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming by today, giving me your time, taking a leap of faith with me and allowing me to try to help you. It is an honor and a privilege. I will see you guys next week. Here's Afterglow by Ben Drake. Check him out. Facebook.com slash Ben Drake Music. Thanks, Ben. No looking back or dwelling on the past. You know you'll never get another chance So go and live your life Yeah, yeah, yeah Push through the pressure like an atom bomb You keep on dancing like it's your last song Makes no difference if you're right